Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be going over the strange case of Jonathan Singleton. And we're on his page here, and he posted Reasons Why Open Theism is Heretical, Part 1 and Part 2. And this was within the last two days this, this happened. Now, this took me by surprise because I had been previously acquainted with Jonathan Singleton. I had been on his Discord channel for, for about forever. And uh, I was disfellowshipped uh, like a year or two ago from him because of some sort of disagreement over uh, dispensationalism and atonement or something like that. Well, that that came as a shock because this one day I was banned without explanation or reason. So I had, had to piece all the pieces together. But it, uh, Jonathan Singleton used to be an open theist. He's been interviewed on Pine Creek's channel as an open theist. And now, well, lo and behold, He's a full-blown Calvinist with these interesting videos, which are mind-blowing. And so I was watching this the other day, and I couldn't help but think, is this guy on drugs? I mean, he, he was an open theist, and now he comes out with this video in which his arguments are absolute nonsense. His arguments are misrepresentations of open theist beliefs. Uh, he misrepresents what I write. He takes articles written by me and says, I am saying something that I do not say in those articles. So it makes me question. So is he on drugs? Number two, uh, maybe it could be that he just got involved with Calvinists and wants to be part of their clique. So he has to kind of uh, disingenuously make up reasons that he's uh, disclaiming open theism. Or three, maybe he always has been not the best reader. He's, he's never had that much, that acute of a reading comprehension skills. It could be any one of those three reasons right there. But at first I thought he was on drugs. Like what is going on here? So we're going to listen to part one, well, most of it or something like that. And if we got time, we'll kind of move on to part two. So David writes multiple personalities. It, it could be the case. Um, his his uh, physiology seems to have changed in the meantime as well. I kind of hardly recognized him. He didn't. He didn't look like um, I had remembered, and so you'll kind of see it. We'll, we'll hit play. Hey, everybody! I hope that you're doing well, and I hope you're blessed in Jesus' name. If you're following the truth, and I hope you're as excited for this video as I am. So this video is going to be a so that it, it's a weird smile. It's almost like a fake smile going on there. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see what he says about open theism, which is the belief that God, and it's a false belief that God does not exhaustively know the future. My King James only friend has joined the chat and uh, I like King James, Texas Receptus. Free will decisions of mankind because a future free will decision cannot be known. This is obviously a very false belief. I'm going to prove this very. So here, here's the thing. He defines open theism and how does he define open theism? He jumps straight to a philosophical definition, but you'll see later in the debate, who does he rely on as uh, representing open theism, myself and Bob Enyart. Do, do, do myself or Bob Enyart, do we define open theism like that? Do we care about these philosophical concerns? Is that what guided us to our, our conclusions? It's not, it's not. I think what he's doing is he's trying to frame open theism as a philosophically derived belief. And you'll see that in, in how he talks about what open theist believes. He'll, he'll point back to the philosophy of it. And then he'll quote me as if I agree with anything he said, any of the claims he made, any of the definitions he made of open theism. 
it seems disingenuous just a little bit him being very familiar with things that I've said in the past. Simply, and we're going to get right into it. So you have to ask yourself the question, did God know that you were going to be born? If the answer is yes, then he knew the future free will decisions of who everyone would eventually marry and, you know, in some cases not marry and have kids with and how genealogies would go all throughout time. Because if he knew that you were going to exist, he knew everything that was going to happen before, which means he knows all the factors that lead to every single couple getting together and having a child or multiple children. Yeah, so is that true? Is the only way that God can know uh, all future genealogies is to have this sort of exhaustive knowledge of all future events. The difference between open theists and Calvinists is open theists think God is competent, capable, has power to accomplish. God can do things. Yeah, if that's something God wanted to do, open theists would not say that he can't have that knowledge, that he, he can't know those things. It was really funny in my uh, uh, Dane... Dane, uh, what's the guy's last name? Dane and Dan, we were debating, Will Duffy and I. And there was one commenter in the questions because Dane and Dan would always point to prophecy and they say, look at this prophecy. How, how would God uh, uh, do this prophecy unless God had this exhaustive knowledge of the future? And the question was, okay, take yourself and put yourself in the open Scythia's shoes. Is there any prophecy in the Bible that God would not have that power to accomplish unilaterally if he wanted to? Is there any? And uh, they kind of hemmed and hawed. Uh, but, but the point was this, that these people undermine God's power, God's ability to create, God's innovation. They say the only way X and X and X could be true is if God has my particular uh, view of, of omniscience as, as an inherent attribute within himself. There's no other way. You remember the Calvinists, they like to do the one rogue molecule. One rogue molecule would upset God. So let's say the entire universe is as predestined, predicted, and controlled by God, but there's one rogue molecule. Everything else is thrown in into limbo. But I think, uh, just perhaps, maybe God could, in fact, uh, know all genealogies in the future and have one rogue molecule. Per just perhaps, may maybe that's a possibility that we should actually consider. So, Point being is they diminish God's ability, God's power, God's competency. I'm not saying God knows all genealogies, but I'm not saying that it's outside of his skill set. And I'm not going to give uh, God no credit like John Singleton does. God, remember in the Bible, he's more innovative than you. He could raise new children of Abraham from the rocks and in that way accomplish his purposes. God's competent. God is not incompetent as the Calvinist thinks. With all of that in mind, imagine how many future free will decisions that God would know right out of the gate if he knew that you were going to exist. But of course, we will look at much scripture that proves this. And before we do that, we're going to look at someone who was debating James White, who actually denied right out of the gate in a cross-examination that God knew. Biblical discussion, King James says he got 30 verses showing open theism this morning. Well, I gave you 95 and Will Duffy gave you like 400. And if you go to godisopen.com, I, I posted Elsa's work, which is another additional 4,000. There, there was actually a funny response to a Calvinist who's like, the, these 300 verses prove Calvinism. 
It's like, if that's what we're doing, if we're just counting up numbers and we're just going to play the numbers off against each other, 4,000 is a bigger number than 300. So the open theist win. Uh, but the Bible doesn't work like that, of course. So you just got to examine the evidence. And that's what we're doing here. We're turning to one of these Calvinist proof texts, and he's going to talk about the open theist understanding of a Calvinist proof text. And we'll see where this proof text, where it lands, all said and done that he was going to be born. So let's get into that clip right now, and then let's continue to destroy open theism together. Destroy. Did God know that you would exist when he created the world? No. Did God know that sin would exist when he created the world? These are being framed as gotchas. The Calvinist likes to do this thing where it's like, if God didn't know that you wouldn't exist, then wouldn't that be terrible? <laughs> like, okay. I guess our feelings have some sort of effect on reality. He created free moral beings, so he knew it was, uh, 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 he had a contingency plan to send his son. He knew it was a, a grave possibility. So you just identified the cross as a contingency plan, is that correct? Yeah, if man didn't rebel against God, Jesus would have died. So as you can see, as an open theist, you have to believe that God didn't know that you were going to be born because that presupposes a lot of future free will decisions. But as we're going to see right now. So no, notice this kind of uh, absurd absolute. Since Bob Enyart answered James White's question in a single way, that means all open theists must affirm this. Uh, that's, that's incorrect. A lot of open theists have disagreements on very basic issues. Is the fall, was the fall known to happen? Was the fall probable in God's mind? Did God expect the, the fall? These these are things that are have contention within open theists, between open theists. So you can't just take one person answering uh, one question that's directed by James White to be a gotcha and then just project that onto all, all open theists. It do doesn't work that way. There's a diversity of opinion. Right now, people actually were foreknown. They were elected. And they were chosen to be in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So if there That's is false. a book that had the names of everyone who was going to be. That's false. It looks like uh, my, my buffering is having a little bit of problems here. Saying, again, again, was created but I, I don't think the main video feed before is. the foundation of the world, then you can't say that open theism is true because all of that has already been seen by God. So let's get into what the Bible says about this right now. So go So his claim is that there is some sort of divine book and this divine book has everyone's names and this divine book was made uh, presumably timelessly. There is this timeless divine book with all the lists of names of everyone who would ever believe. And he's turning to Revelation 4 for this, uh, this concept. It's interesting. It's always interesting how late people turn to in the Bible for their proof text. So it's like, it's never in Genesis. It's never in Exodus. You know, you, you keep going. And it's always these like random. It's like, what did they do for 4,000 years? Did they just, they just didn't know this stuff. And then it came along. You can't prove stuff with earlier. But that's neither here nor there. The verse doesn't say what he thinks it says. Let's hear him. To Revelation 17 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction, and those who live on the earth. So, a real group of people, you know, they are an actual group of human beings that John is seeing in a real vision of things that are really going to happen. All right, we'll come back to what he just said, but Warren McGrew makes a pretty good point. He says, uh, the same people who can't imagine how God is smart and power enough to do anything are the same ones who believe that uh, God is unthinking. 
God's unable to fix. So may, maybe the two go hand in hand. But listen to what our friend Jonathan just said. He just said that in Revelation, basically Revelation operates that John, the writer John, uh, got access to a video camcorder of future events. Does that happen anywhere else in the Bible whatsoever? Like, like some angel or divinity video camcorders 2,000 years later and then sends that videotape back to John and then John visually sees video recordings of the future. This is his claim. Does that happen anywhere else? How about Joseph? Joseph has a vision of uh, the stars and the moon and uh, also the sun bowing down to him. Did that ever happen? Well, no, his father and brothers did bow to him, but the mother was dead before that happened. So it's kind of a loose vision of, of the future. How about when he, he uh, uh, had a vision of these cows? Did God transport them to a farm and these were actual cows coming out of rivers? No, that was just a vision. We got some other visions. We got one in Daniel in which uh, Daniel's brought up to see God. And it says that he's dreaming. So so when Daniel saw the body of God, was this a physical reality like John Singleton would have us believe Revelation is? Remember, Revelation is a videotape of the future that's being given to John in John Singleton's mind. Is Daniel like that? So Isaiah's a unique case because Isaiah actually does look like a physical manifestation in real time of a body brought to see God. I don't think Daniel is. Daniel's sleeping. So if, if we're reading Revelation and there's anything to indicate that John is sleeping or in some sort of state, uh, Jonathan Singleton, uh, he might be out of luck there. If there's anything to indicate that this isn't a real videotape of the future, Jonathan Singleton, his his point here is just completely fabricated. He doesn't back this point, point up at all. He just says, uh, this is a videotape of the future. He's seeing actual people. He sees their faces. What exactly what their faces will be like in 2,000 years or more because he doesn't think any of these events have happened yet. That's what he thinks is, is going on there. In Isaiah, Isaiah is brought up and we get some indication that this is actually a physical manifestation. We have an angel which has to purify him, indicating that he has to subvert death. You, If you see God, then you die. So he has to go through the purification ritual. You don't see that in Daniel. And Daniel specifically says that he's dreaming. But if we go to Revelation, now we could go to the start of Revelation. I got to pull it up real quick. But uh, number one, it says these things will soon happen. And then it talks about John's state of being when this revelation comes. And guess what? It says that when he's in spirit, that's when he sees these things. What does it mean to be in spirit? Does that mean it could, could mean sleep? It could mean some sort of theological trance? I don't think it means. Uh, what John Singleton thinks it means, that now this can't be metaphorical or it can't uh, be imagery like we see throughout the Bible, such as Joseph getting visions of what the future is going to be like through imagery. I, I, I just don't see it. That's, that's not what's going on. <laughs> Another thing, uh, I'll, I'll just throw this out now, but it just really challenges what's going on in Revelation as being completely literal. So is there a temple? In Revelation, is there a temple in the New Jerusalem? If we read Revelation 21, there is not. Go read Ezekiel. Is there a temple in the New Jerusalem? There, there's a very, very detailed temple. Uh, it's measured. The inner walls and outer walls are all described. It, it's multiple chapters long. A description of the temple in the New Jerusalem. 
But then in Revelation, it says there's no temple because God is the temple. Interesting how those things don't quite line up. How does that work in a, this literalist approach? I'm using quote marks because I, I don't think he takes it literally. I don't think he reads Revelation and accepts everything that Revelation says. But how does his approach work with that? Deal with those, those facts, those differences between apocalyptic literature, the absence of the temple, and the complete detailed rendering of the temple. But we'll go on. So already he is seeing over 2,000 years into the future a bunch of people who are going to exist, a bunch of things that are already happening, and open theists want to say that God doesn't know things that are going to happen in the future. And you have to say that, yeah, they could create a subsect of, oh, there are a certain amount of things God's going to do, like, you know, keep some people in salvation, let people into the new heaven and the new earth later. But no, you can't just pick out a few things. This is- Why not? Why, why can't you do a few things? I'm going to do a few things. I'm going to eat dinner tomorrow. Okay, that's a few things. I don't have to control the entire future or particularly know anything about the future to know that I'm going to have dinner tomorrow. That's It's not hard to do. It's not hard to do. It, it doesn't follow, doesn't logically follow that you, you can't just pick some things and not everything. The opposite is true. We would assume the opposite in our normal experience. He's speaking about the entire course of human events that has a lot to do with future free will decisions. Because even according to open theists, God flooded the world because of future free will decisions, and they don't believe he knew he was going to do that. So how could God know, according to their logic, that all of this was going to happen exactly? And how could God show this to John exactly? So notice the smuggled assumptions again. He says, oh, we're returning to Revelation, and it has to be this exact thing that I say, a video recording of the future, where we get that it's nowhere else in Scripture. Every time else we get visions and prophecy of the future and future events, it's always contingent. It's also always with a lot of uh, symbolic imagery, which uh, different symbols mean different things. Like even the statue that uh, of Daniel, Daniel's statue that talks about the different empires. This is not a literal, real statue that he's viewing. There's a lot of imagery in visions. And so it's not a movie of the future. There's nothing to suggest that. This is a very speculative claim, one that's unproven, and one he really needs to be true because that's how he's trying to prove open theism false. Nowhere in here does it say that this is a video of the future. You know, with an open theist viewpoint where you can't, you know, where God can't know all future free will decisions, that's insanity. But before I even continue there, let's look at another heretical explanation of how an open theist tries to answer this question. And one thing I want to say about that too, right? Miss London dude, uh, Miss London dude says it's like a stalemate to try to use the Bible to argue for either position. It's a natural theology debate, not a biblical one. It just depends on what proof text you put at the base of the systematic. I, I guess I, I would uh, modify that as the, the current debate, the discussion about Revelation is what kind of genre is it? Uh, how woodenly literal do we take it? Um, how woodenly literal was the audience supposed to take it? In which, uh, what way is this text functioning? And again, these are reading comprehension questions. He doesn't seem to be asking and answering the reading comprehension questions. And, and um, it's it's interesting to me. Uh, that he's going to go ahead and straw man and claim things that aren't accurate or true. Things that about what I believe. Well, we'll go ahead and see that. Right before we start this clip, this is what you have to believe as an open theist, unless you want your entire position 
to collapse and be obliterated. That's not true. But it makes true. you a heretic and makes you deny the words of revelation. I'm very flattered because he shows a clip of me and he says, you have to believe what I believe in order to be consistent. I'm very flattered, but that is not the case. There are other options. Which is a damnable offense. That being stated, let's continue to the clip. Okay, so when he when we get to the book of Revelation and, and John sees a new heaven and a new earth, is John seeing reality? No, no, it's not. Actually, John is writing to churches that no longer exist, right? So uh, he, he writes a letter to seven churches. None of these churches exist anymore. This letter was meant to be to a people who would be alive during the lifetime or the near lifetime of John himself. And so this is this is an elapsed prophecy, just like every other apocalyptic prophecy in the Bible. Uh, these things are very uh, figurative. They're very speculative. And they have a lot of uh, weird imagery that's involved with them. And, and some of the details between the different apocalyptic texts, they don't quite correlate on a one-to-one -one basis. So it's, I would say it's more speculative than it is seeing a movie of the, th of the future. So it's not what's going to happen. It's a simulation. It's some video game, some matrix of something that's going to uh, kind of look like that in the future. But then again, so I'm going to add to what I say on this video. Yeah, the expectation within the book of Revelation was that it would happen within the lifetime of the hearers. The temple is still standing. So dispensationalists in today's world are looking for the temple to be rebuilt because the temple in Jerusalem was supposed to be standing at the time of the writing of Revelation for these events to happen. And remember, it was destroyed in 70 AD, telling us that Revelation was written before that date. It was written before 70 AD. If you read it, it says these things must shortly come about. And then if you look at the end of Revelation, it says, uh, do not seal up the words of this prophecy because it will shortly occur. And this is an allusion back to, uh, I think it is Daniel, who also st states it and says that the, the words of this prophecy are to be sealed up because the time is not yet. So you have Daniel where it says it's not yet. 600 years later, you get Revelation and it says the time is now. And now we're 2,000 years later, and he says, um, apparently, that's, that's soon enough. That, that meets the, the intent of don't seal up these words because the time is now, 2,000 years later, even though there's this 600-year gap between it being sealed and it being open. You would think maybe that might even be the limit, that there are another 600 years you expected to happen. But no, uh, what you got for Revelation is either it's a delayed prophecy or a false prophecy. You don't get this option where, is meant to happen 2,000 years later. That's that's not part of the prophecy. That's that's not meant. Every single writer of the New Testament talks about this, this coming soon apocalypse within the lifetimes of them or their hearers. It has to happen now. And it the fact that it doesn't suggests to us this is not a videotape of the future. No one's watching IMAX and watching video feed from the future. That's not what's going on here. For all the reasons that we've already stated, non-existing churches, non-existing uh, temple of Jerusalem, non-existing temple between Ezekiel and Revelation. All, all of these time frame considerations. This is not this is not a video of the future. Like every other vision within the Bible, it's not a videotape of uh, the future. Again, uh, under an open theist viewpoint, if you ask God to give what he thought would happen in the future before everyone rebelled in Genesis 6, it probably wouldn't, you know, the world that he would 
predict probably wouldn't look like one that was totally flooded. So either way, you can't even say that the amount of accuracy. Yeah, Jeff says some of the things in Revelation seem to have a cyclical nature to it. Yeah, the Jews conceived of time as secular, cyclical, and uh, certain events would repeat themselves. There are certain tragedies in the world that would repeat themselves. And the apocalypse is not the end. So the apocalypse is one of these a cycle things that would occur. And so all these apocalyptic texts within the Bible kind of point to the same sort of uh, reckoning of the world, that God's going to come back. He's going to bless the righteous. He's going to punish the wicked. He's going to set up some sort of rule or kingdom under either himself or an avatar or some sort of godly king. And that individual would reign in per perpetuity, something like that. So these apocalyptic texts have the same narratives. But of course, the details are going to be a little bit different. They're different writers writing to different audiences under different time frame considerations, and things are modified based on who the audience is. So details of prophecies are not as important as the gist of its of the prophecy itself. He's, he needs to assume he needs to assume this is a videotape, or else his views fall apart. Even under your false and heretical paradigm, would even be accurate. Gcon is here. <laughs> so open to change. Prophecy, even in that context, couldn't even be established to the amount that you even want to give it credit for. Thus, so again, prophecy is God's current intents based on the current actions and behavior of the people, subject subject to change, meant to to compel them to change. In which case, God Himself would change. This this is the story throughout the Bible. Prophecy is meant to be subverted. So trying to use prophecy as this uh, Nostradamus a prediction of the future where you could see everything in a crystal ball, that's just not how prophecy works and operates within the Bible. It's flexible. Things change. Uh, punishments are delayed. God says, I'm going to punish this king. The king prays. He says, okay, not in your lifetime. Uh, he's going to punish this people. Um, the king's son, Josiah, is righteous. He says, okay, I'm going to skip I'm going to skip this generation, but the punishment is still coming because God modifies his plans based on current circumstances. Uh, remember, uh, it, uh, what is it? Uh, one day is, is, is like a thousand years and a thousand years is about a day. The context of that verse is that God might delay the apocalypse to, to fulfill some sort of plans based on current circumstances. God's plans are subject to change based on current circumstances. This is how prophecy works. It's not a videotape. It's not a crystal ball. Open theism can't answer at all if this is an actual prophecy that's going to happen, how it could fit into an open David says, only witches claim to peer into the future. Yeah, something like that. I, I'm kind of reminded of the witch of Endor in which there was a future a prophecy given about Saul, but that was coming from a dead Samuel about Saul dying on the battlefield. So that's a different question. And, and, and how was this known? In what way? In, in what way was this faded? Was this fixed? Those types of questions are up for discussion. Open theist worldview. But let's continue now. And now you're you're seeing how there are a lot of hoops that open theists have to jump through. And this open theist is actually very nice. And I'm not nice. probably one of the smartest <laughs> ones, but either way, it's still a heretical idea and it still doesn't hold water. So let's move on. So that's a misconception. I'm not nice. Moving on with the idea of those who live on the earth, an actual group of people that God actually knew who they were and was showing John real people. They weren't like holograms from the matrix. So, you know, you'll notice from the James White, William Lane Craig debate 
that James White would uh, get throw out a verse and uh, he would throw out the verse, he'd read the verse, and then he'd spend like five minutes. This is maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but like five minutes explaining what the verse means. Well, if the verse spoke for itself, you wouldn't have to spend all this time explaining it. And so him saying these names, they must be this videotape uh, of all these people's faces, exactly what they look like, uh, their social security numbers. That's just... That's just uh, him assuming things out of the verse. It's not there. It is not there. That's not how prophecy throughout the Bible works. When people are bowing to a statue in uh, Daniel's vision, if he's seen people, uh, these are representative of what the people would be like or what the people would do. That's how prophecy works. So it, it's complete speculation. And it's not supported by anything in, in the text. And remember, all those problems that we come to if we want to take Revelation as a videotape of the future. It just doesn't work out. Tricks with no face. They were like real people whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So either the writing or the compiled names inside of the book, pretty much both, were there from the foundation of the world. Is that what the verse says? Okay, so those who live on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, where does it, what's, what, what's going on there? What's the subject? Um, is there any noun that's like the names that are, are written in the book of life? I'm not seeing it. If it's there, this verse is not about names which are written in the book of life. This is, is a verse about names not written in the book of life. There's no doubt about this. And actually, this is even affirmed on an open theist website where they state that in Revelation 13, 8, they don't like the wording that Jesus Christ was slain from the foundation of the world because then God would have known that Adam was going to sin. So they. So that's that's again where he does this uh, philosophical projection. So he has to mind read, hallucinate my motivations for believing that the phrase is not the lamb is slain from the foundation of the world. No, my, my actual reasons is I, I don't think that's in the mindset of the author. Um, I think that the text is fairly clear based on the wording of Revelation that the lamb slain is modifying the book. It's the book of the lamb slain. There's various divine books throughout the Bible. They have different names and different purposes. And we even see a very brand new book written, a brand new book written in Malachi 3. Uh, a, a Calvinist proof text stronghold where the people, they're afraid. I, I've explained this many times, uh, the context of what's going on here. So the, there's righteous people and uh, they're in Israel and they're afraid that God's going to come back when he judges the wicked. And then accidentally, because they're not Calvinists, they're not Arminian. They think God doesn't even have present knowledge. This is their mindset. They think God's going to accidentally punish them when God returns. And to alleviate this fear, God says, okay, we're going to alleviate this fear. We're going to make a brand new book. We're going to open it up and write your names in it. That way you can be assured you're not going to be accidentally punished when I return. This is what happens in Malachi 3. A new book is written. And so I don't think that there's anything in this verse saying that there's a lamb, book of the lamb slain that's been existing since time eternal. I don't think anything like that. And he remember, he made the claim that both that I think that this is a book that existed from the foundation of the world and the claim that I think there's been names in it from the foundation of the world. Both of those are inaccurate. I don't believe those. Nothing I write in these paragraphs states that. Again, the verses that we're looking at are about names not written. So let's say I say something like, all the people who have ever existed 
whose photographs are not in my family of photography album, those people will not be invited to my family reunion. Does that mean my uh, my family photography album was eternal? Has 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 existed as long as the people whose pictures are not in my family album? That's not what it means at all. That just means that I'm limiting my family reunion to people whose whose pictures are in my family album. And if I have a kid and uh, I take a picture of him, I might add that to the book. If someone dies, I might pull it out, something like that. But again, the verses are not about names that are written. It's about people not, not uh, being added to the book of life. And so what would this mean? Basically, this means that all the unbelievers alive at the time of this event, all those people, regardless, they're the ones that are going to be wondering. They're the ones who are not going to know what's going on because they're not the elect. They're not the believers. Um, they're, they're not the God-fearers. And so they're going to marvel. They, they're not prepped for this. That's what it means. Say instead of Jesus being slain from the foundation of the world, they say that the book of life and the names written were written. Uh oh, Idol Killer says James White agrees with my interpretation of Revelation three thirteen eight. Well, I I should hope so because that's the rational one. But how you know this? You must have gone through a lot of uh, individual pain and suffering to watch James White long enough to find that tidbit again. One of my theories here is uh, uh, Germany loves David Hasselhoff, and Idol Killer is is a sadomasochist and likes to inflict punishment on himself. So those are the two two maxims that are are from God is open and from the foundation of the world to get away from the ultimate. Yeah, Idol Killer also makes a very very stellar point that the the word is apo. So often you'll see Calvinists try to say all the names uh, which have not been written in the Book of Life. Before the foundation of the world, they'll they'll use pro like before. But if you look at uh, the the critical text of the New Testament and you look at the majority text, all of them say apo. All of them are since the foundation of the world, and so it operates like a summation, like an addition. And so there's another verse out there that says that all all the blood of the saints from the foundation of the world are going to be accounted against you, Israel. And and how that's working is it's a summation. So you take the foundation of the world. And then you take now, and then you add up all all the that blood between those two time points, and that's the blood that's going to be accounted against them. It's like uh, since it started raining, I have not grabbed an umbrella. That doesn't mean before it's uh, I, it started raining, I didn't grab an umbrella. Even if I did grab an umbrella, since it started raining, I grabbed an umbrella. That doesn't mean I grabbed an umbrella before it started raining. It means sometime between when it started raining and now, I grabbed that umbrella. That's how this is functioning. These names have not been added to the book of life since the foundation of the world, that time period between these two events. That's how it operates. Idol Killer says, he accused me of heresy for holding this view, so he spent 15 minutes to refute me and ended up affirming this. Fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you're, you're suffering for us. <laughs> knowledge that the fall was going to occur and that everything was going to occur with Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection exactly in the way that it happened, even though the book of Acts clearly states right here that all of that was also predestined as well, which means that... So we jump from one hijacking of a word to another hijacking of the word. Often the word, the prefix pro, you got pro horizo, which is translated predestined, prognosco, which is foreknew. 
Often that's just saying this event that we're describing right now happened beforehand. So when the Jews foreknew Paul, that means they knew him previous till today. Uh, when when other writers use the word prohorizo, that means in the past, someone specified something at the time of the event that we're discussing. So very easily, Acts 4.27, about, uh, it says, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servants, Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. Uh, very easily, that means whatever you decided at that exact moment to occur. You were guiding events. You were seeing what events were going on. God was, and then he brought things to their proper end, which is the typical biblical view we'll, we'll see throughout the Bible, that God operates in real time and decides things and, and, uh, and moves, moves his prophecies. He moves his, his, what he intends to do. He changes his mind based on current circumstances. So again, the hijacking of words, predestination, pro-arizo, foreknowledge, pro-gnosko, Again, often, most often in the Bible, they refer to something was done previously at the time of the of, of the event that's happening in the context. That God was doing enough through his sovereignty throughout time to make sure that that event occurred. That's a very clear example of how open theism has no answers for future free will decisions and future plans that would be contingent on a libertarian free will decision if those were a thing. With that being said, let's wrap up this first verse that these names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That means so two times within the book of Revelation. It talks about names being added and removed from the book of life. And elsewhere in early Christian texts, we have the same functionality where names are added and removed from the book of life. The Revelation at, at, at the beginning of the book, it talks about your, your names are going to be secure, not going to be blotted out. And at the end, it says, if you do this, then your names will be blotted out, which it depends on your interpretation, depends what, you, what you're whether using the majority text or the critical text, whether it's the book of life or the tree of life that they're talking about, either or works in context. But again, their, their idea when they're writing these things down is that this is a dynamic book. And so he's, he's not proving what he's, he's setting out to prove. And the crazy thing is that he has access to all my material. All he had to do was read it and respond to the actual arguments that I've made in the past. He didn't. He, he has this whole video of me talking about why Revelation can't be a movie of the future, and instead he, it's a hand wave. It's like open theists believe that. Isn't that awful? Ha, I refuted open theism. So I don't know. Maybe there's a guy uh, off camera with a gun to the, John Singleton's head making him do these things, make it, making him give these points. Maybe he wants to be ingratiated into his Calvinist new buddies so, so badly that he has to just forego common sense and just make whatever random argument thinks behooves him at the moment. Or maybe it's our third option that he just never was able to read. By coincidence, he was an open theist, but you know, that it, it, it changed because he's, he's, he's not reading consistently. So we're going to jump now real quick. I don't know how long we've gone so far, 40 minutes, but this is actually pretty funny too. This, uh, Hey, everybody, hyper I oh, hope that you're doing this hyper literalism and Genesis, which is his second video refuting open theism. Well, we'll, we'll, well start. and I hope you're blessed in Jesus name if you're following the truth. And if you follow open theism, you are not following the truth and you need to repent. Yeah. Who are you trying to convince us or yourself? 
repent because this is a really crazy doctrine and we are going to get into it once again, ladies and gentlemen. So let's do it. So a good intro here is that open theism is... Jeff says, I don't think you can be an open theist and be full of yourself. It must be antithetical to each other. Maybe that's why you could be open uh, theist. I have more... Ah, more faith in humanity, our diversity of opinion, thought, and ideas that pr pretty much anyone could have any intellectual position. So I wouldn't put it past open theists to also be self-righteous and uh, very egotistical. I wouldn't do that. But uh, that is a pr pretty funny point. It's very hyper-literal with their biblical interpretation in order to have a very, like, woodenly literal reading of the text. Yes, that's that's woodenly literal. When Jesus says he's a door, I think he's like made out of wood. Woodenly literal. They sacrifice God's qualities and his deity attributes. And this is really apparent, especially when you go to something like Genesis 3, when God says, where are you? When he's trying to draw Adam out so of his this. hiding and his shame. And a lot of open theists will say, well, this is a known answer question. It's pretty obvious that God knew where Adam was. Maybe some really hyper ones say he didn't. But for the most part, they say, no, no, he did. But he was just using this phrase to get him out of his hiding. No, no, it doesn't work like that. You either read things in a situation like that as this is really what's happening and God is really trying to find it out, the plain reading of the text, or you say that he knew, but he's interacting with mankind and this is how we are reading the Bible being written by men that were moved by the Holy Spirit, writing so that mankind can understand the words of God. With so, okay, so let's stop right there. Um, notice how insane that is. So basically his claim is that every question in the Bible, uh, because Genesis 3, if you read it, there's nothing that says God didn't know where they're at. He has to speculate that open theists must affirm that God didn't know where that they're at because he asked the question, where are you? Which is completely false. Uh, human language doesn't work that way. So when Paul says, uh, why, or how can the, the pot say to the potter, why have you made me this, this way? Or who can respond to God? Who can reply to God? He's he's not like inquiring information. He's not like saying, can you give me a list of names who can reply to God? I'd like to talk to those guys uh, to talk to God on my behalf. No, it, it's a rhetorical question. Uh, there's a purpose in the question. And the question isn't to acquire information. So just because you see a question mark, it doesn't mean that the person's ignorant of what's going on there. This guy must, this guy must have a real, real problem watching police interviews or watching a TV show in which cops are trying to trip up the criminals. And they're like, where were you on Saturday night? And they have like videotape of the guy. Like he's at like Best Buy or something. And the guy says, oh, I was, I was uh, at home. It's like, but we got this videotape of you at Best Buy. So known answer questions have a purpose. And the purpose is to find out information from someone, whether they're lying or not, whether they're going to tell you the truth or not. So easily Genesis 3 could be a known answer question. This is a, a common conversation technique used world around. You, questions are not only used to acquire information, not even within the Bible. Uh, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and it's like, where's your husband? She's like, oh, I'm not married. I don't have a husband. And he's like, yeah, you don't have a husband. You got like seven husbands. It's a known answer question. And to, so to come to this text and say open theists must believe that God is trying to acquire information that he doesn't have, oh, they have to believe that. There's no other way that this can be taken, even though there's nothing in the text that says 
God didn't know where they were in the garden. And yeah, um, some open theists can say that God was actually trying to acquire information there. What's his response to that? His response to that is, oh, that's terrible. First he goes, those people who are using well-known questioning techniques to gain information about people's truthfulness, that has to be just dismissed out of hand. Why? Because there's a question mark. Don't you know that question mark? You, the only way you could use a question mark is if you're ignorant of the information from what you ask, right? That's what he has to do. And then he says, oh, and those people who actually believe that it's a question mark and God's trying to acquire information, eh, we won't talk about those guys. Isn't that terrible? Uh, those those guys are awful. Refuted. And then he puts a big refuted in his title. He's like, refuted. I don't have to do anything else. Game over. Uh, where do I get my prize? Gold star. With all that being said, we're going to get into another devastating verse for open theists that Greg says never talk to the cops. It's actually true. There's there's a story going around on Twitter today about an ex-Marine who had witnessed a murder and the, the FBI tried to pin it on him, even though he had no uh, spalling from, from the bullet and uh, he didn't have any weapon or anything like that. And there's gang activity in the area with known people who had armed robbery on their records. And so the cops set him up. They set him up. They framed a guy. He spent like a decade in prison. So that's true. Don't talk to the cops. That's a, that's a different different story. Many of them that want to remain consistent try to keep on that straight, hyper-literal path, but unfortunately, doesn't really work out for them. I'm going to... So, okay, hyper-literalism is a really bad way to treat the Bible. I don't think anyone actually treats the Bible hyper-literally. Hyper so when Jesus says... Uh, I am the door. No one thinks he's like made out of wood and then you like turn a knob or something and then you can push him open and he swings on hinges. Uh, no, no one thinks that. So the, the proper standard is what would a reasonable person reading this per the genre think is happening in this passage? So if you're reading a detective crime novel and the cops questioning the guy, uh, where were you on Saturday night? You don't just automatically assume the cop doesn't know. No, it's a possibility that that you have to, uh, maybe the cop does know, maybe the cop doesn't know. You'd have to look for other evidence to figure out what's going on. And that might actually lead you to conclude what type of question is, this is. So if there's other evidence that shows you that the cop does know what that guy was doing, then you say, oh, he's, he's trying to figure out if this guy is lying or not. You, you, don't, you don't say, oh, I know this cop is omniscient. And so this question is just a facade. And it doesn't actually exist. It doesn't serve any purpose except for to be some sort of uh, mockery of, of history where people just go through these mock actions without any purpose. That, that's not what you do. That's not what you do. Whatever the genre is, you try to read it to try to figure out the intent. If Genesis is supposed to be history, if it's supposed to be historical, we should probably treat it like it's historical. And try to understand idioms and figures of speech and metaphors. And, and idioms and figures of speech and metaphors, they have meaning. They don't mean nothing. You can't say, oh, God repents. That's just an idiom. Therefore, we could just ignore it. It doesn't have meaning. Idioms have meaning. What does it mean? What's it communicating to the audience? What does the audience, what are they meant to walk away with? Are they, are they meant to walk away with a literal picture of what's going on? And I, what what book was I just reading again? Again, because it, it's a pretty good book. It was uh, uh, the Religion of the Semites, I think it was, where he he goes through and points out that in the ancient mind there was no hard delineation between metaphor and reality. Uh, that there's there's quite a lot of overlap in those categories. 
And so we, we have to consider that. To show you why that is. So in Genesis 18, 20 through 21, and we're going to get into the context of this verse later, the Lord said the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done entirely as the outcry. So Brian, he writes, notice how this guy said that open theism discounts God's deity. He's trying to conflate deity with sovereignty. It's either intentional or he has no categorical understandings. Yeah, not only that, but he has all these categories for God. And that is the overall textual, uh, that's what that's the interpretive lens in which all scripture is interpreted, rather than historical critical. Uh, he doesn't think that somebody with no understanding of the Bible can come to the Bible and pick it up and figure out what's going on. He needs this lens to come to the scriptures. I think, I think you could take a completely neutral, non-Christian historian who pours over these texts. And they are able to come to an accurate or mostly accurate understanding of what this text was meant to communicate to its respective audience. I take the historical, uh, the, the, the critical, the uh, uh, canonical critic criticism approach that the end a copy of the Bible, the Bible we have now, was written for a purpose to an audience that we could look at and we could understand and we could come to knowledge of it. You don't have to come with all these, these categories that don't exist in the Bible. Timelessness, simplicity, even William Lane Craig, neo melanism You don't have to come to the Bible with these constructs. You could actually just read the text and figure out what's going on. Which has come to me indicates. And if not, I will know. So some open theists, knowing they need to remain hyper-literal to the text, say God really didn't know that this is what was going on. Now, some try to strafe the issue and say that God was in a situation where he came down as... So we, we could take bets. Um, does Jonathan explain what this phrase means? Does he, does he give us some sort of something that we can walk away with and understand the meaning, what it was meant to uh, impart to its respective audience? Is he going to do that? I, I don't think so. My money's on no. Remember, I've only seen like a minute or two of this, this video, so I haven't seen this all the way through. But I don't believe so. He, he doesn't have a pretty good pat pattern of actually addressing actual arguments of open theists. Mankind, so he lost past memory of something that happened before. And some won't even articulate that he lost past memory. They'll just say he just can't see what's going on right then. But either way, God would have known for a very long time that Sodom and Gomorrah had done this and that their sin was great in the memory that he had when he was in heaven before he took the form of a man coming down in Genesis 18. So either way, and I know that open theists are going to be very nitpicky with the way I argue it, but it doesn't matter. Either way, they try to strafe out of the issues. They're going to lose the argument. It doesn't matter. And we're going to get into the reason What's the as argument? to why that is right now. When we go to the context of why this was stated, and we go to Genesis 18, 17 through 19, there is a narrative. Now, unless you want to be hyper-literal and say God's just talking to himself for literally no reason, no. This is a narration so that we who are reading the word of God know what's going on. So it says, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am? Is, is it going on, Jonathan? It's a narrative so that we know what's going on. Can't they just describe what's going on? God destroyed this city for this reason. Does God deliberate? This is describing God deliberating, right? God talking to himself. In what way does it give us communication about what's going on? 
And in which way is this necessary to frame as God speaking if that's not accurate and the narrator could have done it himself? Right? I'm about to do, since Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Yeah, and how did that how did that work out for God? How did Israel, God's chosen nation, how did how did that work out within the Bible? I don't think very well. I don't think very well. They had to be cast off. They had to be cut off, as Paul writes about in Romans. And the Gentiles grafted in. Huh. Interesting. So this is us getting an insight into how God is going to interact with Abraham and what he's going to let him know. That indicates and directly implies that God already knows what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's stop pretending like he didn't know. He was giving this narration to Abraham to draw Abraham into this heroic stance where he would intercede for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and advocate for justice. And of course, God was already going to do what he was going to do. God was never wrong in what was going to you know, occur because God was always planning on doing perfect justice and he always knew. How well, does Abraham believe that? Does Abraham hold Jonathan Singleton's view of God? Does Abraham think that it's all set? God has all this knowledge, all these facts and details of, about the area and uh, perfect righteous and perfect judgment. And so there's there's no point in interceding or asking questions or arguing with God. Abraham does it. He argues about with God about standards of righteousness, how much collateral damage is acceptable. And he argues God down within the text. And so this is this is crazy talk. What's going on? Is this a historical narrative? Does Abraham actually argue with God? Is there an interaction? Does God interact? That sounds pretty discursive, right? Does God think? Does God talk? Does God take input from outside himself? That's what's going on here. This is the God that Abraham believed in, not the God that Jonathan Singleton believes in. How many righteous people and how many wicked people were in Sodom and Gomorrah? And he got the righteous people out. But with that being said, we know that Sam says he just states his belief and he thinks that it makes it true. That's what Calvinists do. So it makes me wonder whether this is intellectual dishonesty or he actually believes the things that he's saying. Is he trying to placate his new social friends? Because if you're an open theist, you're not very popular. If you're a Calvinist, you get a lot of friends. And so making an open theism refuted part two with absurd arguments, which you know are false, might socially behoove you. What is it, Jonathan Singleton? What's going on? What's happening? God is about to give this narrative that we see in 20 through 21 saying, I'm going to go down and see what they're doing. And we're going to actually know what's going on here to Abraham because Abraham doesn't know what's going on. That's the context. That, that's so not the reason, though. That's not the reason. He says this guy's going to be a mighty guy. He's going to be an important figure in history. And so I'm going to talk to him about it. And he's inviting input, as God often does throughout the Bible. God has counselors. There, there's a divine counsel which, which advises God. In 1 Kings 22, he, he calls the angels up and they suggest suggestions to him how he's going to get Ahab killed. God is a God who takes advice, takes counsel, listens to people's concerns, uh, cares about their concerns, and changes accordingly. I don't think that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah would have uh, been saved. Lot would, Lot and his family would have been saved if Abraham had not intervened. And I think that's what the text is going for, that Abraham can affect God, that his prayers and intercession can move God 
to change God's desires and plans and standards. We know that this is God telling Abraham what's happening. We know that from Genesis 18.23, because Abraham approached and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then they get into, hey, if there's 50 righteous people here, are you still going to destroy it? And it goes down and down from there. With all of that in mind. So if Abraham thought that he wasn't arguing, why wouldn't he just say, hey, God, how many righteous people are there in the city? And then say, oh, are you going to destroy the city for that amount? No, Abraham doesn't have Jonathan Singleton's views about God. He has a view that God's actually going to go check what's going on in the city. And then based on the number of righteous, we'll make a decision whether to spare or destroy the city. And he actually tries to accomplish something. And throughout the narrative, he keeps saying, don't be angry at me. Remember, Moses does this too in Exodus uh, 3 and 4, where he keeps pressing it back against God. He's like, don't be mad, don't be mad. And God gets real mad. Because uh, Moses is pushing back and then God has to change his plans and, and give Moses all sorts of considerations. And then finally goes back on what he said he's going to do. He said, Moses, you're going to be my mouth. And Moses kept being whiny. And then God's like, no, never mind. I'm sending your brother instead. He changes his plan based on inputs of people. That's what happens. That, that's how these things work. We know the context of Genesis 18, 20 through 21 is God having this interaction. It's just with play Abraham, acting, where, Sam, right? Just like in the situation with Moses, where Moses intercedes for the people. And I believe it's Exodus chapter 32. Uh, I remember using that one as an open. Um, it's so embarrassing now, such a stupid doctrine. But right here, we can clearly see that um, it's a setup in order to inform Abraham of what's going on. Now, before we get into a lot of the biblical narrative, clearly seeing that God knows everything that's currently going on. Hebrews 4.13, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. Yeah, so how does God acquire information in this verse, Jonathan Singleton? Is it, does God acquire information? What's going on here? Does God have eyes and uh, have a visual, everything's in his sight? Is that what's going on in this verse? I don't think you believe your own proof text. To whom we must answer. And there are other verses too, like the eyes. Ah, we're spinning here. It's, it's loaded on I me, mean, but there's there's other the verses Lord are as in well. Every place watching the evil and the good. Oh, apparently. Yeah, God, God's eyes are in every place watching the evil and good. Oh, let's see what he says about this. Apparently they're not. Apparently they're not. Yeah, you don't believe God has eyes and you don't think they're watching things. You think God has this inherent, ungenerated knowledge, and it, which is non discursive, which doesn't have any. Any, uh, it, it's not dependent on reality. Reality is independent of God's knowledge of reality. That they're they're co-true, but not dependent on one another. And so, yeah, God has eyes, and they watch the world. And often in the Bible, eyes are associated with angels. And so, Proverbs fifteen three could go either way. That maybe these eyes are like the seven eyes of Zechariah and the angels that are described in the beginning of Job which go to and fro on the earth and then report back to God. It could be that. It could be just a general omniscience claim like Hebrews 4.13. But you don't seem to actually acknowledge the fact that there are these types of statements in regards to human beings. Human beings know all things. David, King David, has all knowledge of the earth. The king of Tyre, he knows all the secrets of the hearts. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes has perfect knowledge, right? He's seen all things on earth. The writer of Ecclesiastes have seen all things on earth, but you're not going to take these phrases in a consistent way or acknowledge that they exist. It undermine your point. God, according to the open theist. So uh, Greg says a lot of eyes. Um, yeah. So it's actually interesting that 
there is a book that I have on Ezekiel that talks about the eye motif in ancient Near East religions. Often you'd find maybe like the wheel of eyes, like you see in Ezekiel, I believe it is. Um, eyes would symbolize a type of omniscience in ancient deities. Uh, Janus had a face in the back of his head, multiple eyes. Marduk had, I think his Marduk had several sets of eyes. The eye motif, the multiple eye motif, has symbolized omniscience in these various deities. And so we, we have to also look at that type of imagery. Is, is it imagery? Is it accurate? Is it, uh, are we seeing videotape or are we seeing imagery? Those are, those are good questions. And according to the open theist, things are not open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. No open theist is going to say either that. He didn't see what was going on, or some of them try to argue that God literally forgot what was going on, that he saw it and he was like, oh, that's so bad. I'm not going to remember it. But then he wouldn't be. I doubt you're going to find someone, anyone who takes that position, but it is a possibility. Maybe if you search long and hard enough, you might find that. Able to judge it later, because then who's going to remind him? Which brings first Corinthians 4, 5 to light. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of human hearts. So he's going to bring all that to light. Who's going to remind him if the open theist is right and God... So again, this, this is one of those arguments where it's, I can't conceive of a way God can do something... Therefore, God can't. My system must be true because I don't have the mental capacity to think how a God with infinite resources could categorize our sin unless he absolutely knows it uh, for, for exactitude. He couldn't have like video recording software everywhere. Maybe human beings might have something like a mind that records all our past acts and actions. He couldn't rely on, on that type of software or anything like that. That's impossible. God is too incompetent to come up with any other solution rather than your definition of omniscience. This, this is how these discussions work. These people think God is incompetent. They think he's incapable. This is Calvinism. They have a very low, a low view of God, uh, a view of God that's ridiculously low in which God is less powerful than normal human beings. God is less powerful than human beings. And, and you, you hear that all the time in how they talk. They say, oh, if you decided to uh, follow Jesus, then you're more powerful than God. God needs to have made the decision or else you're more powerful. Than what? what are you talking about? None of this makes any sense. They literally think human beings are more powerful than God. They say either my system's true or, or people are just really strong. And, you know, one thing you need to do, uh, it's really funny to do is ask Calvinists, has God ever lost a wrestling match? It'll put, put them in a panic. They'll like they they'll they'll want to say no because they don't want God to have lost a wrestling match and a wrestling match is pretty mundane, right? But in the Bible, he has lost a, a wrestling match, and so so it's it's instant cognitive dissonance in which their mind they they don't know how to react to that question. Shows to forget what was going on. This is insanity. And I'm going to show you that open theists have a very hard time because they're stuck between their lust of using a passage to try to prove. Preach the word says we can cry anthropomorphic because Paul said God is invisible. Yet God is described as in Daniel 7 or Revelation. They use anthropomorphic conveniently. Yeah, Paul says he's a visible, not visible. And so uh, in what way is God invisible or not visible? Is he not visible because seeing him incurs death? 
as we read in Exodus, that Exodus 33, where Moses wants to see God's glory, and they have to go through this uh, thing to make sure that he doesn't see death. And we also see that also in Isaiah 6, in which Isaiah is brought up to God, and they have to purify him with a coal or else he's going to die. Is that the way in which God is not visible? Or is he like talking about, like, you literally can't see God because he's like, He's like air. He's like in the spirit realm, which doesn't mix with the material. And so people literally can't see God. So um, it's the jury's out on what Paul actually means there. But I always assume that Paul is referencing Old Testament ideas. And it's more likely that he's being consistent with uh, the prior chapters of the Bible. That, that's my assumption hyper-literalism and then saying, wait, we're actually getting too close to the core. We're plugging too hard into the power supply and we're going to combust. So one way or another, you're in bad shape. But I'm going to show you that one of the main open theists that I've seen on the internet pivoted really hard one way to another because, well, I believe that he was scared to actually embrace the full implications of open theism. Let's see what, I guess what only goes he on. knows really why he did it. But let's go on and look at this clip. Oh, Will Duffy. It's really not that surprising, the strange antics that we see from open theists, and we're probably going to continue to see them. So let's talk really quick about Genesis 18, the historical tradition of commentary on Genesis 18. Uh, so you could go pull this up in the Sephira, I think it is. It's a Jewish website which you could look at all the different Tanuk type commentaries on Genesis 18, and you get a huge array of answers. One of them is uh, God knew the current events, but when it says, I'm going to go down now and see, that means he's going to test them and then figure out uh, if they will continue to be this way. So that is an option. Another one is uh, by one, one rabbi that says, God knows uh, details, but not particulars. So God knows the evil that's going on, but not the particular details. He's going to go confirm those particulars. Other ideas is that this is just uh, you know, more language of testing. Uh, I'd have to just go pull up all the commentaries. So there's there's a huge host of ways that people deal with this, and they're not all uh, illegitimate. And Will Duffy deals with this by saying this is uh, Jesus here that we're talking about. This is a pre-incarnate Christ who doesn't have this type of knowledge. Quite a bit. Let's get into this clip. In that example, we have a rare circumstance where God pre-incarnate indwells in bodily form and there's limitations during the incarnation and there's clearly limitations there. That is how I interpret that passage. So even though Jesus remembered everything that had gone on in the past, I guess the father did. Brian says, open theism believes that all things are laid bare, that uh, our friend Jonathan was lying when he says the open theists don't believe that. So he's, he's like projecting what he wishes open theists would say based on uh, how he treats the language. No, but open theists will say, God knows all things. God, uh, everything will be laid bare. And he says, uh, Brian Wilson says, this is obvious talking about current knowledge, which is consistent with open theism. Not only that, but a lot of this language is uh, past deeds as well. You guys are sinning. Well, God's watching you. You guys think you're doing this in secret? Well, God knows what you're doing, and you will be held to account. Just like the passage in Ezekiel when he goes into the mound, and they're worshiping these false idols, like idols of rats and stuff like that. They're they're doing it in secret so they won't be full and open to God's vision. The counterargument is God sees, God knows what you're doing, and you will be held to account. Yeah, that's what open theists believe. <laughs> Sam says, that debate was painful to watch. Oh, I didn't watch this one. Oh, no. Oh, maybe I did watch this one. Oh, Tyler Vela debate. Oh, gross. 
I didn't even see Tyler Vela over there. It's like a discount Steve Anderson with like like a big marshmallow face. When he went into bodily form in Genesis 18. And there's also no evidence that God relinquishes divine attributes just by showing up in the form of a man. No, I, really assuming a lot. I think that's the one that Will Duffy tricked me into because he's got the same background. That's the, that's maybe the one where uh, a Pine Creek got the me, me, me video where Tyler Vela is like, oh, open theism is so man centric. And then he and then Will Duffy says, oh, why? Why did God choose you? And he's like, well, uh, and he just starts talking about himself. And so they turn. Pine Creek turns it into a me, me, me video with the, the song from the Muppets, Muppet song. Me, 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 me. That's a, that's a good video, but uh, we'll see. Uh, John Jonathan Singleton thinks that Will Duffy doesn't have an answer that's acceptable. That, that's actually a trend we're seeing here. He, he reads a verse and he says, open theists will say this, and often it's a misrepresentation, and he'll be like, oh, I don't like that answer. That answer can't be. All right, now that I've refuted open theism. And reading a lot into that text by stating that God loses divinity by becoming a man. I guess you believe in kenosis as well. That's interesting. So, okay, so where is your metaphysics coming from, Jonathan Singleton? So if God becomes man, what changes does that entail in your theology? Where do you get that theology from the Bible? God, the word becoming flesh. Okay, uh, word becoming flesh. Where in the Bible, Jonathan Singleton, do you get what that means and what that uh, precisely involves? And uh, if divinity attributes, these this this random category that's that's not in the Bible, if those are laid aside or latent or discarded or kept, none of none of these are biblical categories. This is complete paganism. It's being brought into the Bible. It's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't describe this. You have to come to the Bible with these considerations. You have to come to the Bible with these lenses. And James White was just called to account on this on our last live stream. On our last live stream, William Lane Craig is like, I'm giving a model. You're giving a model too. All the evidence you present is evidence for my position. We're, we're on the same page here. We're, we're both just generating models. And the Calvinist is so delusional that they think that just reading the verse and having their presuppositions in place means that their presuppositions are biblical. That's how their mind works. It's insane to me. It's insane. That you call yourself a Trinitarian by that logic. You're such a liar. But other than that, I want to really emphasize that this is what you used to believe. All right, Jonathan Singleton, if, if you watch this video and answer one question, one question from any of the, these videos, anything that I ask, how about this? Was the human part of Jesus, was that part, specifically the human part of Jesus, was the human part divine? Yes or no? All right, Jonathan Singleton, tell us all about your knowledge about the Trinity. Answer that question. It's a yes or no question. So maybe you can say like, yes, and then describe what you mean by that, or say no, and then describe what you mean by that. Was the human part of Jesus divine? Jonathan Singleton, take it away. It's funny, these people who talk about the Trinity, they don't know what the Trinity actually entails. If this debate was before the one I'm about to show you, and now we're going to get into why you clearly just take everything on the head now, hyper literally. It's interesting how you couldn't stay within even a semi-rational view. Open theists always have to take it to the extreme when they end up getting deeper and deeper into the belly of the beast. Let's check it out. Yeah, okay. So, so notice how crazy that is. Oh, now he's cutting over to my debate. Okay, great. So I'll start. Uh, Christians make a huge mistake, in my opinion, 
in telling God what he knows and has to know, what he does and has to do, where he has yeah. to be located. I think that's a big, huge mistake. Yeah, well, My definitely. definition for omniscience is God knows everything knowable that he desires to know. And I am never going to tell God that he has to know something in order to be God. He is free. And if he does not want to focus on filth, especially the kind of filth that yeah. was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, he does not have to. So now you're saying that during that time, God did have his divine attributes, but oh, he just didn't want to focus on that, but he could have. So you are saying now that God did have present knowledge or the potential for present knowledge in that moment, but just because he can have present knowledge doesn't mean that he actually looks at everything. No, that's actually the opposite of what Will Duffy was saying. Uh, he's saying that you can't just assume these metaphysical models of what God must know onto God. Maybe, maybe there's some sort of, I don't know, large document with many different chapters. They could, they could divide them up into verses too. Maybe there's some sort of text or something that we could use as some sort of data to compile um, what the biblical uh, uh, Israelites, what they believed about God's omniscience. Maybe that, that sort of data exists somewhere in some format, somewhere. That's why this debate is not about what I believe. And I started this debate that we're looking at currently. I started by saying, this debate is not about what I believe. It's not about what Dan believes, not about what Will believes, not about what Dave believes. What do the biblical authors believe? And when that's your standard, Jonathan Singleton, he fails because nowhere is he quoting actual biblical authors talking about his views of what he actually believes about omniscience. Instead, he's doing God has present knowledge because God watches the world. Yep, that's what I believe. Uh, that That's that's what's going on there. Yep, that's what the author is intending, that God is gaining information from present events. And then they they pretend that they won by just reading the proof text. The Calvinists read a proof text. They talk about that proof text. It's it's discon disconnected talking. And then they like assume that they're being biblical, that their, their standards are biblical. Again, just think back to uh, the names written in the book of life. He didn't show us any phrases about any names written in any book of life. Instead, he showed us verses about names which are not written in the book of life and just assumed that there's an eternal divine book of names from time eternity with everyone's name that's unchanging, stuff like that. It just, it's just not in the text. Your, your, your proof, your evidence is not in the text. You can't make disconnected claims about the text. It says John saw these things, saw these people, and he says, oh, it's, it's a videotape. No, you're not getting that from the text. You're importing that onto the text. Where in context supports your random baseless claim? Where does it? Where, where, where is it in the text that that's what it describes what's happening in that verse? Calvinists are disjointed from their proof texts. Their proof texts are not proof texts, but talking points. They have a verse, they throw the verse out, and then they talk about unrelated things and think just because they link those two, they have a proof text. That's, that's not how the, this works. Everything. That's a very interesting twist. So let's go just to the word of God, which apparently you really don't like because Hebrews 4.13 says there is no creature hidden from his sight. And the All right, so we'll probably end with this. We got uh, Chris Jones, and he says, this guy's being quite insulting to a position that he used to hold. Brian Wilson says, I think we found our new insufferable James White polemicist prodigy. These are all could be accurate. Remember, I hypothesized that now he's in a group of Calvinists and now he has to do outward signs and symbols and uh, repentances 
that are public in, in the Calvinist mindset in order to atone for his past sins of open theism. And maybe this is this is the thing. I, I don't know if this guy actually believes the things that he's saying, um, that he holds the position that he's saying, or maybe he understands how disconnected this is from reality. Maybe he understands what he's doing, but he's just trying to ingratiate himself with this new group, this new group of friends. Very easy possibility concerning both these things that we talked about, how polemical this is and uh, how he... Uh, how he used to hold these positions, and he's been very dismissive towards them. Notice the misrepresentations. He's, he claimed that I made points that I didn't make at all. He claimed that I thought that there was an eternal list of names, and that I thought that this book was eternal, the book of names of, in the book of the Lamb slain. I didn't make any of those claims. So notice how this works. But we're, we're going to cut there for the night. Uh, we're at about, about an hour and 20 minutes, so that, that's about good. Kind of losing my voice, so we'll cut there. But uh, thanks for watching. And if Any questions, comments, put that down below in the comments or, or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Till next time.